This episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast is made possible thanks to the EAT Foundation. EAT is a science-based global platform for food system transformation. Their mission is to transform our global food system through sound science, impatient disruption and novel partnerships. At the core of their work is the EAT Lancet Commission's report defining six key strategies to making it possible to feed 10 billion people healthy diets from sustainable food systems. EAT works across sectors with key influencers and core partners across the food system to elevate solutions and science that inform urgent action and critical transformation for healthy, sustainable and inclusive food systems. The EAT Lancet Science offered up the planetary health diet as a crucial strategy for the great food transformation. The diet leverages the six report strategies to maximise health and sustainability. EAT knows chefs are critical to shifting what food we produce, eat and waste. Chefs help make the science delicious, the unknown accessible, and they show us how to take action today on our plates and in our kitchens. EAT is inspired by and grateful for the Chef's Manifesto and the ever-growing network of amazing, animated, creative and inspiring chefs from across the globe in the network, bringing the EAT Lancet to life. We the chefs, we the chefs, are working together to create a better food future. I am George, Andy, Tom from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India, New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is, is life. life. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast. I'm your host, Chef Tom Hunt, a Guardian columnist, food sustainability campaigner and author of my new cookbook, Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. In this new episode, we'll be discussing Chef's Manifesto point one, ingredients grown with respect for the earth and its oceans. Unsustainable farming methods are negatively impacting our climate and our ability to grow food in the future. Did you know that 90% of fish species are on the verge of collapse? And industrial agriculture is responsible for clearing 5 million hectares of forest a year, the same size as Costa Rica. In this episode, I'll be talking to chefs and experts from across the world about the steps they are taking to become more sustainable. We'll hear from Palmiro Acampo about zero-waste cooking. I'll be talking about the effect of certain ingredients on the human body with Manjeet Gill and looking at the GIY or Grow Your Own initiative in Ireland with food writer Mike Kelly. But first I'm joined by a chef from India. After completing a Cordon Bleu Grand Diploma in London, she returned to India and collaborated with veteran restaurateur A.D. Singh to launch the first soda bottle opener walla in New Delhi. Now chef partner at the branch, Anahita Dondi has seen the expansion of the chain promoting her native Parsi cuisine. A passionate cook since the age of 10, she continues to be very active with the Indian culinary scene and has won several awards including the Young Chef India Award and the Times Food Award. Anahita, welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's such a pleasure to be here. And most importantly, I'm so happy to hear that we have a podcast at the Chef's Manifesto. So it makes me feel very, very proud to be on it. Let's just dig straight in. I know that you're a passionate champion of local Indian um, food and in particular, a specific grain called millet or millets. How did you hear about millets and what are they? 
So I think, um, Tom, a lot of people are confused on what is millet and, you know, if it's one thing or if it's many things. So millet is actually an ancient grain, uh, which is, uh, you know, from the small seed family. And it's been used in um, a lot of countries like Asia and and um, Africa. And uh, in India, we have many different types of millet. So millet is a family and there are many different types of millet. These are gluten-free grains. They're very, very small seeded, like I told you. And they're extremely climate friendly because they only use one tenth the amount of water that rice or wheat would. I've tried it myself, but I don't cook with it like you do. It seems to be like a staple part of your cuisine. A lot of people find millets to be a little earthy and a little uh, bitter. Uh, so I feel like a lot of it attributes to how you treat uh, the millet. So a lot of people don't know how to cook the grain. And at, at a lot of events, I've usually you know, tried and shown how is it that you can use millet in different ways other than just making a, you know, a porridge or a pudding out of it, which is popularly made. But it's not cool and people don't want to eat that anymore. So, you know, like a sorghum khichdi, uh, in India, we call it bajri ki khichdi, um, you know, which is like a, a pudding. And even in Africa, they use a lot of sorghum and a lot of pearl millet, which one, which is one of the most popular kind of millets. But other than that, there are eight others, like, you know, kodo millet, uh, even little millet, uh, or even ragi, which is one of my favorites. It's a little red in color. So these are fascinating grains. I mean, I, I fell in love with them the first time I, tra- I started using them. And I also realized that everyone thinks it's very difficult to cook with it and it doesn't taste good. But you can you can literally turn it into anything you want. So when was the first time that you cooked with millet yourself or, or even eat, ate it? So I uh, obviously ate it in my childhood uh, in my native uh, town where my grandmother was. Now she shifted and she lives with us, close to us, actually. But uh, a lot of it was used and eaten in every meal, uh, you know, when my grandmother and my mother were growing up. But then there was this gap. And I think I probably tasted it once or twice. And I didn't like it when I was a kid. Uh, And then I tried it about three and a half, four years back. Uh, when I met a group of women, they run a farmer's community in uh, in Gurgaon and New Delhi in India. And they uh, are called the Earth Collective. And they actually made me meet a lady who's been promoting millets. And she has her own green, which she sells her own green. And it's called Millets for Health. So I asked her, I was like, you know, can you tell me how do you just basically cook this? Because I want to come up with something and I want to, you know, I want my customers to try this. Because I love the grain. And uh, she came into my kitchen and she taught me how to like basically just cook it and wash it. So you need to wash it three times. That's how you get rid of the bitterness. And you just need to use like double the amount of water like you would cook rice. And those were simple things. And that's when I uh, learned the basics from Pallavi. And uh, I did the first millet menu, the all millet menu, which was starter main course dessert. Uh, in the restaurant and since then it's always been part of the menu and I love experimenting with it. Amazing, it sounds delicious (laughs) and I understand that you uh, serve a millet bread in your restaurant, is that right? Yes, we have a roti which is called a ragi roti. Uh, We also have some in our regular bread which we use in in, you know our sandwiches. Uh, We try and add uh, millet into that as well. So, and we've got salads, we've got some main courses. Uh, I love using amaranth puffs. Like, you know, you can you can puff any millet. 
just like popcorn you can puff any millet so i love the fact that you can do that and uh, use it in different salads just adds a beautiful crunch delicious and good in chaat or something like that i love using it in chaat because you can put a little bit of peanut coriander green chili a little bit of the two sauces and that i love making with tamarind chutney and the green fresh green chutney and some yogurt oh. um you just put those powerly you know you know those amaranth puffs on top and you've got the sweet sour crunch and also most importantly the nutrition which comes from these very very tiny greens and for those listeners that haven't tried chaat it's well you're probably better at describing it than me anita so chaat is uh it comes from the word chatpata or chatori which means you know something that is um you know that kind of makes you salivate and it's it's sweet sour spicy it's got those umami flavors um and it's something that sells on the streets in india in every part of the country you have different chaats so if you look at the map of india from north south east west you'll have different flavors uh you know a bombay bhel puri will be different from a kolkata uh you know chaat or a delhi speciality will be different from what you would get on the streets of kerala um and it all is because of what grows locally so in kerala there will be a lot of coconut um you know in delhi there'll be a lot of potatoes and even spinach which right now in winters is in abundance um and in calcutta there would be a different kind of puffed rice which is used which is a local uh, puffed rice so chaat is all of those things with different chutneys and chaat masala which we love having uh for Del- all the listeners out there it's making me want to eat it right now delicious <laughs> and um so why why are millet so special in terms of their their environmental impact how can they help us why would we eat them as opposed to just having rice on our menus i think tom that's a very important question because uh i think we are as as a global community depending on four greens currently and uh it can be a bit scary because we need to diversify we need to make sure that we have enough biodiversity in our kitchens uh to keep certain ingredients and grains alive and for me when i thought about millets i just kept i i kept thinking that why do i not have it on the menu and why does everyone else in india in the restaurants not have it on the menu when it's a staple that grows in india in abundance uh and what's happened is farmers have stopped growing it because there was no demand in the market and now we have some amazing restaurateurs and chefs promoting uh the grain and bringing it back or talking about how you should go back to your roots and you know look at your own regional flavors and in india in every 100 kilometers there will be a different change of terroir and there will be different grains um like i was saying uh so in the northern part of the country you get a lot of barnyard millet which gets eat like you know a kheer gets made like a sweet pudding gets made out of it and in the southern part where i was talking to you about ragi um which is uh, the red grain that actually uh, is used in a lot of idli and dosa batters which are uh, eaten uh, in the southern in the southern part of uh, the country so it's called it's known as finger millet and it's given to lactating mothers and and babies because of the high calcium content uh, that it has so every area has its own millet growing and uh, like i was saying that because there are a lot of chefs and communities and farmers um and uh, restaurants who are trying to bring this grain back and talk about it and get it back on menus people are going and buying it from the markets again 
and uh, we're getting it back into kitchens, which is amazing to hear that there is a demand for the farmers to, um, you know, grow the grain again. So that's an investment in livelihoods as well, isn't it? It is, absolutely. So there's biodiversity and investment in livelihoods. And of course, it's growing ingredients with respect for the earth because it's using much less water. I know as well that they need very little pesticides, if any, to grow because they're kind of native to the region. Um, And because you've got that incredible huge biodiversity or agrodiversity of different types of millet that are suited to each region, it's a really kind of well, it's a traditional but also low-impact form of um, farming and way of providing nutrition for the local people around. Yes, they are, absolutely. And they're much easier to digest. A lot of um, a lot of people eat this in the morning. It's very easy to digest. Uh, so I think it's extremely important to make sure that we have chefs uh, included in this conversation. And the reason I'm saying that is because they know what's going on in their kitchens. So uh, if you ask, uh, you know, a person that why would you want to bring this grain back in a community setting or in a kitchen? Um, for example, if you ask my mother or my grandmother, they'd just be like, you know, we want to probably cook those dishes that we enjoyed growing up with. But when you get chefs um, in in a conversation like this, they can really, really bring together different ingredients and put it out on a plate, making sure that it's delicious and nutritious. And I think that's the best uh, it's it's such a beautiful skill for a chef to have. And I love the fact that I can take different ingredients and especially millets, which I know most people kind of have a preconceived notion about that, you know, oh, we'd rather have rice or we'd rather have wheat or we just have potatoes or anything else that could be native. But it's just about taking that one step and saying that, okay, we know that this ingredient is good and we know it's good for the planet and for the farmer and for us. So why don't we try it? And uh, why don't we create something new with it? And that's what I do on my social media. I, I put up a couple of recipes and um, a couple of things on my menu so that guests can try that and then try it back home. That's interesting. It's so, I mean, it's so, like social media has become so important in terms of us communicating what we're doing as chefs and, think- ha- and you know, more than just cooking nice food. I know. So um, my pictures are usually extremely rustic uh, the way they are. I, I know presentation is extremely important, but I feel the, the value uh, that goes out when you when you eat something which is extremely comfort, like a, a comfort meal. Uh, it's something that connects to a very, very large audience. And on social media, I do see that. Uh, and especially when I do things with leftovers and zero wastage. Uh, you know, saying that, okay, you've got this in your fridge, let's clean it up, let's add a little bit of millet, let's turn this into a salad. And I get such amazing response saying that, you know, thank you for sharing that recipe. And that's how I've been sharing a lot of recipes the last couple of years. And that, actually, I've been doing the same through my social media account to kind of... when they recreate your recipe, and I think that's like better than any like or any comment that a person's actually taken out time and recreated your recipe. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a real pleasure to hear all about millets and also, yeah, kind of what you're getting up to over in India. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure being on the show. My next guest is a food grower and founder of Grow Your Own, a grassroots initiative called the GIY Movement. GIY has swept through Ireland and further afield, 
promoting food growing in schools and communities. His name is Mick Kelly and he joins us down the line from Ireland. Hello Mick. How are you doing? Lovely to talk to you. You're well. I'm brilliant, thank you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I just wanted to, well, start off by talking a little bit about the GIY movement. I'd love you to tell us about what it actually is and how it all began. Yeah, so we, we've been going about 10 years now, Tom. So we, we started very much as a grassroots uh, grassroots movement. So my kind of story was that I'd, I'd worked in IT, which is uh, kind of a very unlikely place for this to all start. But I was, you know, pretty typical early 30s, young professional kind of, um, you know, re- into my food and like to eat, but not terribly connected to where it all came from. And I had a kind of a road to Damascus moment in a supermarket um, where I wreck some garlic I was about to buy. I noticed that it was from, I noticed on the label just as I was about to throw it into the supermarket trolley that it was from China. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of caught my caught my imagination, I guess, in a way that it wouldn't have it if it had been from, you know, from Italy or Spain. Uh, the fact that it was China just really grabbed my attention, and I and I started to get curious about you know where my food came from, and obviously discovered like most countries that Ireland is importing a huge amount of its fruit and vegetables in particular. Um, and decided to try growing some of my own garlic in the first instance. Um, and even though I was, you know, zero green fingers, the least green fingered person on the planet in some ways, <laughs> I managed to grow some garlic successfully and just was completely smitten and captivated by the idea that you could you could produce food in your in your own backyard, you know. So I kind of felt um they always say there's no there's no zealot like a convert. I I was kind of just convinced that it was such a brilliant way to reconnect with your food and reconnect with real food to to grow some of it yourself. So I sort of felt everybody should be doing this and started a little small what we called a GIY group here in Waterford in 2008, and it just started to spread from there really. And we we very quickly realized there was a huge hunger in um you know in communities and companies and um among sort of citizens and and chefs indeed for knowledge around food and to reconnect with food and we set ourselves up as a social enterprise that promotes food growing as a way to help people to make uh, more sustainable food choices and from those very humble beginnings this year we'll we'll support about half a million people to grow their own food and become more sustainable for the first time um, across Ireland and the UK and beyond. So we're, it's been quite the, quite the wild journey from that first night in the supermarket, you know? Wow, that's so impressive. I mean, and garlic, I've, I've grown my own garlic once too. And I was, I literally took a bulb of garlic that I bought from the supermarket and planted one of the cloves and it just multiplied into this bulb, um, which was, yeah, just really incredible. Um, it's, and a, it's I, a remarkable thing, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I always think I was lucky I didn't start with, you know, it wasn't carrots from Israel that had caught my eye in the supermarket because, you know, garlic is one of those things that's very easy to grow. And um, there's just something, as you say, from that one clove that you get a bulb. It's 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 a really just a really straightforward thing to grow on, on many levels. So it's um you know, that, that kind of piqued my interest and my curiosity. And I had such a success with that first one that, that that kind of gave me the boost I needed to keep going with it then. 
Yeah, yeah. And I've had the same experience in supermarkets, actually, where I'm just like shocked. There's, you know, you pick up a cauliflower, it's cauliflower season, middle of winter, and it's been imported from halfway across the world. It doesn't yeah. make any sense at all. Um, but I've actually I've started tweeting it now. And it's 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 interesting because the supermarket quickly responds and gets involved. Um, and it's a nice way without shaming them too much is a nice way to get them kind of to make them realize that people do notice and care. Um, but yeah, I think I think they are starting to. And I think like bottom line, a supermarket is a place where there are no seasons, really. And there's no there's no there's no localness, really. It's just it's just um whatever food you need at any time of the year it's it's there and that that has that places a tremendous you know strain on the on the resources of the planet and makes the food chain you know incredibly fragile and very unsustainable at the same time so i think i think that's the that's the key and i guess i guess what i discovered was even you know the key insight on which diy was founded is that even though you know even though i i was only growing you know, I don't know, one or two percent of the food that I that I could eat, it, it changed the other 98 percent. And I think that's that's our insight, I guess, that that food growing is is an incredibly powerful way to reconnect with people with food. And it doesn't have to be about self-sufficiency. It can be, you know, any anything you can do to move yourself along that that path is is very worthwhile and makes you a better more informed consumer because you've got that that kind of um understanding of where your food comes from yeah absolutely and it's really interesting that you're kind of you keep mentioning the importance of us reconnecting with our food and that is something that i've come to realize through my work in root to fruit eating and sustainability because i care very much where my food comes from and believe that we all need to understand a little bit about where our food comes from, especially chefs. So what I'd like to know from you really is how you think we can break down those barriers further to help chefs and home cooks reconnect with their food and how it was grown. For a long time, we were kind of a movement of, of people without a home. And I guess um, three years ago, we opened a, a centre here in Waterford called Grow HQ, which is which is at a, at a very basic level, it's a restaurant. Like it's a it's a three acre site that the city here in Waterford gave to us, and and so we we grow you know probably eighty percent of the food that we serve in the restaurant um, here on the site. So really, that's that's, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Yeah, I mean we're trying to break down those barriers to, between where the food is grown, cooked, and eaten, and so. We've a we've a very you know effectively the restaurant sits in the middle of a of a veg patch and um, we've a we've a glass a glass building the 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 room itself is glass on three sides and then the the kitchen is also very open there's a there's an open pass into the kitchen so even even on a on a kind of a sense of connection between the three your those barriers are are reduced if not removed completely and. You know, in in the same way, when we when we're running programs in schools and and in communities and in companies, and we're 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 all about helping people to learn how to grow because we we believe that it's the best way to to remove those barriers. Because when you grow some food yourself, you start to understand seasonality, you understand the work mm-hmm. effort involved in producing food you understand the you know the, the the intrinsic value of it and how um how much work and how much time has to go into producing it and you understand what's in season at different times of the year and so on so it's an incredibly 
it just completely transforms your relationship with food to have grown some of it yourself, I think. And um, so all our programs have that at their core. You know, it's really trying to tear down those walls between, you know, because we, we could go through our whole our whole lives without ever sticking our hands in the in the living soil from which our whole our whole food system comes or, you know, we can we can be completely disengaged if we want but i think i think we've seen the results of that that um in terms of the health of the planet and the health of our people over time it's been incredibly destructive ultimately and we have to turn that around well talking about soil it's an undervalued resource isn't it i mean at the end of the day it we're we're losing our topsoil at a rapid rate a hundred times faster than we're able to make it currently or that we are attempting to make it um i'd love to hear from you kind of like as a grower and well farmer if i can call you that i'd love to know from you what role soil has to play yeah well i guess like I, I think as a grower, what what I realized, you know, within a couple of years, I think it took a while for the for the penny to drop, as it were. But I think I think what you realize is that it's all about the soil, actually, when when your soil is good and, you know, you've 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 closed the loop in terms of fertility and and so on. And, and you're, you've got really healthy living soil, then the food that you produce, it's easier to produce the food, number one, but also you know, you, you start to see that connection between your own health and, and the health of, health of your soil. Um, but really importantly, you start to see the impact that the soil has on the on the taste and the flavor of the food you're eating. And I think that's what's exciting for, for chefs. So we always hear from, from, from GIYers, as we call them, people who grow their own food, that, you know, somehow this food tastes different or tastes like food the way food used to taste. And I'm kind of convinced there's almost like a life force in this in food, although I can't kind of prove that. But um, I know Dan Barber, the, the famous chef from from New York, has spoken about this as well, that that, um, you know, the, the food, you can grow food even organically and have a taste of almost nothing at all, depending on how it's grown. Um, but if you've got food coming from really healthy, nutritious living soil, you're eating vegetables then I think that are that are at their most nutritious and at their tastiest and also in a way grown in a way that's that's healthy for the planet so it's almost what's exciting for me I think at the moment is that the the science seems to be pointing towards a situation where nutrition and sustainability and taste and flavor are, are all interlinked so I think I think that's the key to it, and we can see this ourselves in the in the restaurant here. That the the produce, when it's literally, it's grown a hundred paces from the kitchen in incredibly nutritious soil. That that's fed by the you know the waste from our cafe gets composted and put back out onto the soil. So a completely closed loop uh, system, and you've got you end up with this you know this 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 food that just tastes completely different, and and that's the exciting things I think for chefs because um you know we know ourselves when we have to buy in even organic produce if it's if it's produced on a mass scale it still doesn't taste as good as the food that we grow here and that's that's really exciting for our for our kitchen team because they're working with the absolute best of produce you know absolutely there's so much value from growing your own food isn't there like you said earlier like just putting your hands in the soil 
can help relieve everything from depression to obesity because you're starting to exercise more and you're kind of eating better because you're realizing what good food is and it's just kind of this amazing kind of cure-all for us improving our own society but also I think it's interesting how through our food system and the way we now buy food mostly from supermarkets and things we've really become disconnected from its origin and we're we're unable to make those kind of clever choices on seasonality that we are if we're growing it ourselves because that knowledge is lost but it's so easy to regain it isn't it yes exactly i mean it, it, unfortunately like if if i'm sure your your listeners would be in the same boat that that it's such a complex thing now to be a consumer of food and buying food in the supermarket because you're faced with all of these decisions and you know as 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 chefs they face the same decisions you know what what's better is organic better than you know better than local is local better than organic is how you know how important is seasonal um and it's such a complex mix of things and it's so easy just to say you know well if i buy only organic food then that's that's the way to be really healthy and healthy for the planet and yet it, i i it's not that simple you know as I said, you can buy an organic carrot that'll taste of absolutely nothing. Depend, you know, you can you can still cheat in an organic farming system and 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 grow perfectly acceptable vegetables, but but you know, missing that range of nutrients that you have in healthy soil. And I, and as I said, nutrition and taste, I think, are one and the same thing. So, you know, it's it's such a complex thing. But if you cut through all of that. And go back to the basics of of you know eating in a way that's literally as close to the you know to the living soil as possible and and pull pull food from the soil and eat it um i think that's that's accessing food at its most nutritious at its tastiest and in a way that's that's sustainable for the planet so the complexity of the discussions around food i think are are make it almost you know, some slightly depressing, I think, but I think you can cut through it all by by getting back to the to food at its most straightforward. And and um, you know, so I I'm a big advocate. You hear a lot about hydroponics and growing food in 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 kind of aquaponic systems and so on. And I, you know, I'm just dead against all of that. I think I think soil is the most important thing in terms of of a sustainable food system. And and happily, it's also giving us food that's at its most delicious as well and most nutritious. Absolutely. And we're, we're custodians of the soil in that sense, aren't we, when we're growing food? Does that mean that you promote organic growing methods through GIY? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, 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 we've always been very careful not to beat people over the head with any particular message. And as I said, organic doesn't have to mean sustainable and and tasty either, you know, Um but I think that most people who grow their own food do so organically because you cannot have a living, nutritious soil if you're spraying it with chemicals. Um, funnily enough, we, w- we went to investigate a site yesterday only to, for, we're looking for some extra land for growing. And this, it was an old um, uh, an old nursery, garden nursery, and like literally the, the, the amount of chemicals that have been dumped onto this soil over the last 30 years is just, it's so scary. And as a result, the, you know, the, the soil is just completely dead. 
um, and will take, you know, will take probably five to seven years to recover even some basic life in it, you know. And we can't expect food to come out of that soil to nourish our bodies um, or indeed to, you know, to sustain the planet in the long run. So I think it's, um, you've got to, you've got to work with nature as opposed to against it, which, which is what conventional agriculture has been doing for the last 30 or 40 years, you know. And before we wrap up, I'd just love to know if you have any advice um, from DIY for chefs or home cooks who want to start growing a little bit of food at home for themselves or for their yeah, restaurants. Well, well on, on, on two, the two very different levels there, I mean, for chefs, I think it's, it's all about, like, if, if, obviously, if you've got the space to grow some food, then absolutely do it. And, and, and you know, I'm very mindful that's not possible for everybody. But if, if it is, you know, if it's not possible, rather, you know, connect with a, with local growers and, and a lot of restaurants, particularly, you know, the busier ones have the power to literally work with, with the grower and, and buy all of their produce and dictate how they grow. So you can kind of, you know, find people who share that ethos, stick your own hands into the soil where they're growing the food. And, and, you know, chefs have such a great sense of taste and smell. They, they'll know the difference straight away with this food. Um, so I think I think that's really important. Like don't 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 get caught up into thinking that organic. You know, if I buy organic veg from Holland, that they're going to be great for taste and planet. It's it's not necessarily. Um, and then on a home level, I think you know just get started is the is the is the advice we would always give. Like start with some veg that um, the quick growing things like salads and herbs and and you know just do as much as you possibly can. You know, I mean, I mean, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall back, back a long time was talking about how it's a sort of a, it's like a spectrum between complete reliance on the supermarket and complete self-sufficiency and sort of any movement you can make on that spectrum is incredibly worthwhile. So just, just give it a go with, with however much space and expertise and time you have. And, um, you know, it, it'll just completely transform how you interact with food into the future, which is which is what we need. And for chefs, it's like just get rid of the avocados and sweet potatoes off your menu and start focusing on what's 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 amazing and nutritious and local in your in your own community um, and work with that, you know. Absolutely. I've actually got a, re- a recipe in my new cookbook called Not Avocado on Toast, which you might like. It's I, thought a- you were, I was worried you were going to say I have loads of recipes for avocados. How dare you? How dare you slag off avocados? Uh, I'm it's glad a, to hear that. So a, what, what's, what is it instead then, Tom? It's a guacamole made with broad beans. Oh. Nice. Um, but yeah. yeah, super delicious. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Not at all. Such I'm, an... I'm so pleased to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks a million for having me on. The first recordings for this podcast were made at the Eat Forum in Sweden, where many of us gathered to contribute towards the conference. These conversations recorded with Chef's Manifesto members form the backbone of the podcast and will appear throughout each episode. The first and my next interview is with friend and chef Palmiro Acampo from Peru. Here he is telling us a little about himself and his work. I've been in this career for 16 years so far. I'm 35 years old. I've been working in Peru for many time in different restaurants, traditional restaurants, and also fine dining. Then I go to, to I went to Spain for for more training, two years working in some Michelin star restaurants there. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I come back uh, Peru and 
I started working in very important restaurants as uh, executive chef and also which restaurants were they uh, la rosa nautica which is a very cold restaurant there mm -hmm. emblematic restaurant uh, also in astrid y gaston um them uh working as a culinary instructor in culinary arts school and then i have the opportunity to open a restaurant and i wondering i was wondering Um, am I opening right right now, or I need to train more? And I went to to Copenhagen and worked at Noma for 10 months. And after the 10 months, I uh, go back to home and open my restaurant. I was just in uh, at Noma recently. Actually, I did a very short stage there for two weeks, which was a great education. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's the the temple of cuisine right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what they're doing there in terms of supporting biodiversity and agroecology is really really interesting yeah. like from their foraged ingredients to their cultivated ingredients from around the world and all of their different yeah. pop-ups and so on so it must have been a great experience for you there beautiful experience i was the first peruvian to to go to went there yeah wow and i also do a stash in nordic food lab and do a research with the with the guide for regional development ben, ben Rita at that time and josh evans and then they came to peru And we went to Amazonia for a research about edible insects. And after almost two years, about that uh, time we, we went to the rainforest, they launched this book on eating insects. I have and that I'm book. In, I'm, I'm collaborating there, and so there's my recipes also there. No. Yeah. I've got yeah. that book at home. Yeah. Which is your recipe? Do you, uh, do you need to check uh, Peruvian Amazonia. Okay. And you're going to find it there. How exciting. Yeah. Wow, that's really good to know. Whilst in Sweden, I also interviewed Chef Manjeet Gill from India, who tells us now about himself and his restaurants. By profession, I'm a chef, and uh, I almost uh, completed 45 years of cooking, and uh, I'm still cooking. And But no doubt, I'm not cooking that much on the stove at this moment, but more on the mine, and then on the paper, and then to the stove. Mm -hmm. And uh, But... I'm very, very happy in the, with my career, and uh, I just taken the, you know, change my little responsibility, and I'm working in one company last 43 years and created a lot of uh, world-famous Indian restaurants, mm -hmm. you know, <coughs> and one of the restaurants, two restaurants were... Uh, one remained the top 50 restaurant for a very long time in the world. Oh, wow. And uh, the other one... What are they called? Uh, it's called Bukhara Restaurant. It's a tandoori food. You must, everybody knows about tandoori food. So it's a very, very um, very good restaurant. And it's an institution by itself. You know, you will surprise that the last 40 years, the menu has not changed. Mm -hmm. It's the same menu. Wow. Nothing has changed in that place. It's still popular as it was 40 years back. 365 days is popular. The other is a very fine dining restaurant is a Dambuk. It is also a very, very popular restaurant and very fine dining of Indian food, very fineness in the food. is over there. It's also remained top Asia's restaurants for many years. Mm -hmm. So I have a list of restaurants and the at the end of my career, uh, you know, as a job, chef never retires. The end of my uh, job, I got the opportunity to open a work on a vegetarian restaurant or mm. a plant-based restaurant. Of course, in India, we accept dairy also into the vegetarian. 
and that restaurant is doing very well. It's called Royal Vega. It's one of the finest um, vegetarian restaurant, which is based on the fundamental and the principles of Ayurveda. Mm. So it's very different, very unique, and uh, very happy to open those restaurants. And oh, wow. I can't wait to, to eat at some Thank of them. Thank you. Um, so, Palmiro, we're, we're um, here to talk a little bit about the first point in our manifesto, which is ingredients grown with respect for the earth and its oceans. Um, I imagine that's a really important part of your own work and projects in terms of like the sourcing of your produce and where it comes from and how, what impact that has on the planet. Can you tell us any anything about that or any specific examples of ingredients or people you've met that have kind of really enforced the importance of these ideas upon your own work? Definitely. In Cusco, uh, High Andes, I met uh, a local farmer. Uh, he is uh, Manuel Choque. He lives in Huatata, uh, 4,000 meters under the sea level. And uh, he has, uh, in a two acres area, he has 300 varieties of potatoes, native potatoes. And he also create a, a table that uh, he called the Idric stress table, which is an ancient technique of the Incas, that uh, you put the microtubers, you know, like, like that, the seeds of the potato, you put it in this uh, table, which is all, uh, it's just a table with, with, with uh, rocks, so nothing is uh, life there, just the, the potato. And he uh, add water for 30 days. After these 30 days, he don't add any water for 30 days more. And at the day 29, the, the, the tuber starts to think that he's going to die. So in that reason, they, uh, this tuber take all the, you know, his, uh, his um, estolons, which is the, the way he started to reproduce because mm -hmm. think he's going to die. And at that time, he cut these uh, stems to make a um, combination with other tubers to create more nutrition and efficient uh, potatoes. Mm -hmm. So he's, his guy, uh, this guy is a, 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 a magician. And when I uh, ask him, and, and where you learn this and why you do this? This is uh, the ancient technique. So, but nobody does it anymore. Mm -hmm. And to me, it was a show of respect about biodiversity. He's a guardian of our biodiversity. Manuel Choque from Cusco. Beautiful. And it's, I mean, it's amazing that you're in uh, such a brilliant position where you're able to connect with people like that, that are holding on to tradition and and like you know and the that you're able to kind of help save that tradition through your own work um is just i think one of the key things that's going to help us kind Definitely. of prevent the the climate crisis that we're currently seeing now of course um so i think yeah that's really really inspiring story thank w you when you go there and you hear that story like that you feel responsible so it's important, as as we s s spoke in before, it's good to go to uh, these beautiful restaurants like Noma, but also in 
we need to go the students need to go to the to visit local farmers and maybe do a stash there yeah because at the end of the day it's you know the the farmers that make our food taste good yeah. i mean we can i always say that like you know you can get fancy and you can have all these kind of smoke and mirrors in the kitchen but at the end of the day good food is is about the ingredients and and really we just need to um we have a duty as chefs to kind of represent the the farmers well which it sounds like you're you're doing absolutely so that's really inspiring and something i'd love to yeah do with it more within my own work every chef has a responsibility now they must adopt a farm they must be connected with the farm farmer if they're not connected with the farmer it is not possible to get a good food and that also for the future because chef has a responsibility not to cook for today mm. but to preserve the food and food security also has to be taken care of. so it is very important to have a connect with the farmers mm-hmm. and then one can you know make their menus and all that and the farm product is a natural product it is not as if some farm has 30 40 kilo tomatoes and those tomatoes either you buy them use them or they will be rotting up to two days three days so you must be so much connected with the farmer so that you must know what is the access with the farmer when the season is going to finish some new crop has to come so you have to sort that out you know buy it distribute yourself or make some product out of it store it and then keep using it but one must work with the farmer mm-hmm. absolutely manji um one of the questions i wanted to ask you was about um actually about organic and even biodynamic agriculture in yeah. india because i know that it's very big there yeah. and very important especially with all of of the farmer suicides and things like that through the industrialization of agriculture in india yeah. do you i would love do you have any thoughts on I that i will not talk about farmer suicide it's more politics which i don't understand that politics I understand. but in india you know still the farming is quite organic mm-hmm. particularly the vegetable farmers they are small farmers they cannot afford to buy very expensive you know pesticides and other things to put the farm put the farm or to grow the produce which is not in season with the climatic conditions and this and that to create them and do it so a small farmer can't do it mm-hmm. so they are still honestly they are doing the farming no doubt that is what I, i feel as a chef that we must be connect with the farmers so that farmers should not lose money farmer must get the money back mm-hmm. you know whatever they have produced mm-hmm. that cannot be wasted you know that the what the uh, the chefs has to do it but there are uh, problems that uh, the lot of inorganic farming is happening and more and more you know pressures are also there to create the more inorganic farming because there is and i personally as much i understand i am also belong to a farmer family you know but settled in the city and become a chef but the family is the farmer uh, this mono agriculture or the just inorganic food production is not going to solve the problem of food security it is only the biodiversity our biodiverse agriculture is going to solve the problem of the food security not only the food security but with wellness and sustenance of the climate and the weather 
everything will be taken care by biodiversity agriculture. Is there a hero ingredient you want to mention that you're using today? What ingredient are you cooking with today? No, the the spice I'll tell you the spice I'm using today is I'm using the black cumin. Okay. Which I'm cooking with the cauliflower to give a very nice aroma and a very pleasant you know, the the taste get uh, you know, in that. Mm-hmm. And you know the uh, our spices we use a lot in our food and every spice has to play their own role. Mm-hmm. We believe that, you know, the food has to nourish the body but detoxify the body also simultaneously. Mm-hmm. This is where the spices play a very big role. Mm-hmm. So we must try to use the spices in a subtle way, in a way in the cuisine as much as possible. So... How does bl- what is black cumin? What is the Ayurvedic property of black cumin? The black cumin is, uh, you know, it is is first is taste is a taste in, uh, bitter, and it's astringent. There are two tastes it has, and the black cumin detoxify. Okay. The Thank you so much, Manjit and Palmiro. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's all for this episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast. I hope you can join me next time when I'll be speaking about biodiversity with the scientist director of EAT, Fabrice de Klerk, and the CEO of Tender Greens, Chef Eric Oberholzer. If we're going to achieve the sustainable development goals this decade, then we need your help. If you're a chef or even a home cook, then please join us by subscribing. And if you like what we're doing, please support us by writing a review and sharing our podcast with your friends, colleagues and family. Until next time. Bye for now. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Fairly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity and improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduce waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. Celebration of local and seasonal food. A focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved.